You're listening to Indie Live Radio, and this is the next in our series of programmes called Yes Group Spotlight. And with us this week is Grassroots Oban. Uh, back in December, they organised a meeting with Graham McCormack. Uh, Graham is a retired solicitor, spent a lot of his working life as a conveyancing lawyer, and he has thought through and developed a new public funding system for an enterprising Scotland. It's called Annual Ground, Floor and Roof Rent. And he's just published a book about it. On the back, on the back cover of the book, Graham says, What I propose is simple. It is written with a view to Scotland being an independent nation state. However, even under the current devolution settlement, my proposals could be introduced. It's a gateway to a future lifestyle in accord with the challenges presented by the climate change arises, a defence against economic consequences of pandemics and the onward march of technology. It has well-being at its heart. And he's entitled to tonight's presentation Towards a Wellbeing Society. Indie Live Radio team are very appreciative of Grassroots Oban agreeing yet again to let us broadcast one of their events over the station. Thank you, Grassroots Oban. So, here's Graham. Right. Okay. Well, uh, thanks very much for inviting me. Um, Hopefully you'll hear me okay. Sometimes there's a wee bit of interruption because I'm in the, the wilds of Loch Lomond side, but um, hopefully you'll hear this. How it will start is I'll, I'll do the slide presentation and then after that, uh, you know, I'll take uh, all questions and comments and, uh, and do my best to, to answer them. Um, but uh, first of all, thanks again for inviting me. Some of you will have seen something like this before from me. Um, in, in Oban and in other, other parts of Scotland. Um, but uh, it's, uh, tonight I've called it Ag for Towards a Wellbeing Society uh, since our uh, First Minister, along with the Prime Ministers of New Zealand and Iceland, uh, are signing up to a wellbeing uh, agenda as basically the basis of economic activity. Um, so that's why I've called it that. So... Um, we're calling this Towards a Wellbeing uh, Society. And uh, the agenda, as I said before, was to raise all our own public funding without borrowing, improve everyone's quality of life, vanquish poverty, contribute to climate justice, promote an entrepreneurial culture, and create a true property-owning democracy. I know, uh, you probably think that that is unbelievable. So Scotland's land, as I said, is 78 billion square metres, excluding the seabed. Uh, but because urban Scotland has, most buildings are over one floor in height, I've multiplied that area defined as urban by a factor of two. So we have a, a total square meterage of nearly um, 85 billion square metres. Uh, according to um, the most recent JERS report, uh, the total spend either for in or on behalf of Scotland by various agencies uh, is 80, over £81 billion. Pounds. Uh, but I've added to that uh, in order to address austerity, uh, infrastructure and pay for a universal citizen's income. So I've, I've increased the figure to a whopping £138,440,700,000. 
Okay, so so how do we raise all our public funding from our land to replace all existing taxes? Well, it's a model of annual ground rent, uh, which is charged per square meter on the land, roof and floor space levied according to certain agreed land types. And we call it AGFR, uh, which is annual ground floor and roof rent. Okay. Now, for simplicity, I just have four land types, but it would be possible to have a variation of that. You could have as many variations as the policymakers wanted. You could differentiate between commercial and residential and various types of commercial, charitable, um, uh, pub public, uh, public service places, uh, as many as you wanted. But really, as an illustration, I've just kept to four land types. Right, there you go. Right, so what to consider when setting um, a rate for each land type. Most folk live or work in urban areas. Arable land is generally more productive than rough grazing. Forest and woodland is more productive than rough grazing. Most public amenities, etc., are in urban areas. So for extent, through extensive use require greater maintenance, repair, replacement, etc. Uh, and urban areas, however, create greater wealth generally through the knowledge economy from a smaller area. Uh, and we have an imperative to protect and repopulate rural Scotland. So the, uh, the suggested uh, rates uh, per land type, and I've shown what these are, what um, percentage of the total um, is, um, is part of, these, um, of, of, of Scotland's land area. We've got rough grazing, which is charged at 0.051 per square metre. Arable's the same. And urban's a whopping 10.01 pounds per square metre. And the right-hand column shows you the contribution which each um, each sector or each urban type to the total. So you'll see that the vast majority of it, over 98%, uh, is contributed by urban land types. Okay, so how we calculate your AGFA is you measure the footprint of each floor of your building, add the area of your roof, uh, add the area of your garden or land, Add the area of any pavement or publicly owned verge outside it. Add half the area of the roadway. Multiply the total by the applicable rates. And then you make your return online to Revenue Scotland. Uh, and then you pay it either in full or probably 10 monthly instalments as you, you do with your council tax just now. Uh, and that's just a wee illustration uh, of the how you would add it up um, if this was a property that was sort of self-contained uh, and didn't share any uh, common immunity grounds or things, things of that nature. Okay, so variations to standalone properties. In rural settings, only non-agricultural buildings would attract the urban rate. Otherwise, the land would just attract what the, the, the rate was, whether it was rough grazing or, or um, you know, a cultivated land. Uh, in urban settings, the combined property and garden would attract the urban rate. Uh, the liability for common property and tenement property, you'd be responsible for um, the floor area of your flat, plus, say, um, a sixth of the, if there were six flats in the block, a one-sixth of the, the, uh, the foundations, the roof, uh, the um, back court, um, any front garden, pavement, etc., cetera, uh, close stair, that kind of thing. Uh, landowners of urban type properties have been entitled to recover the AGFA from their tenants. Um, if that wasn't to be the case, then that would mean that anyone who was a tenant wouldn't contribute anything to public funds. So, uh, 
So obviously it's necessary to uh, make sure that um, people contribute towards the um, the public funding, but the liability for payment to um, the uh, Revenue Scotland would still rest with the landlord, but he or she could recover it from, from their tenants. And landowners of uh, agricultural land would be entitled to recover half the AGFR levied on the land. Uh, so that means a tenant farmer would only have to pay half the going rate. Okay. So why would you make your return? Uh, well, first of all, there'd be spot checks by Revenue Scotland with hefty penalties for inaccurate or dishonest returns and failure to make a return in time. Um, the register would be public, so everyone's return would be transparently self-policing and whistleblowing it would not be discouraged. So it basically means that if you've got a semi-detached house, uh, then uh, with maybe one or two slight modifications because your garden's maybe slightly smaller than your neighbour's next door in the other half of the, the villa, um, they should be more or less the same. So if somebody was basically, you know, um, being uh, dishonest, then it would be possible to, um, you know, for that, for that to be discovered. Uh, and so people would be encouraged to be honest and also to make sure that, you know, uh, that other, uh, other people were, were, were basically playing the game. Uh, there'd be no tax evasion or avoidance and there'd be a 100% collection rate because at the start of every financial year, uh, a charge would be levied against uh, all of the title deeds for the properties. Uh, and uh, so that would, present, that would prevent their sale or mortgage until the ANCFR was paid. So we've got like, a notice uh, of the potential liability which house factors can put on uh, properties where there's outstanding uh, common charges or factors involved to. Uh, and if it remained for unpaid for three years, then Revenue Scotland has the power to repossess the ground uh, and to sell it or whatever to recover the outstanding ad for interest and legal costs. And any balance would be paid back to the former, former owner. Uh, and examples of, um, here's an example of the, the total annual household or business contribution which um, there would be to public funds. So as you can see, the three bedroomed modern um, semi-detached with garden ground, uh, I've taken one example, it'd be about £4,400 or thereby. Um, oops. A small flat would be £956. A single fronted shop, £705. A tenanted farm. Now, this is a tenanted farm of about 400 acres, of which there are very, very few in Scotland, actually, uh, with farmhouse and agricultural buildings. It would pay a fairly substantial figure of about 18, nearly 87,000 uh, pounds. But then uh, a tenanted farm of, say, 100 acres uh, with farmhouse and agricultural buildings, uh, relatively small farm, uh, would be only paying 8,800 pounds. And then rough grazing and woodland of 221,000 acres or 894,355,269 square metres. They'd be paying something in the region of about £45 million a year. And that, that's roughly what Anders Paulson, the Danish uh, billionaire, uh, owns in um, that's what he would be paying for his the ownership of um, his his ground in Scotland, and that's in addition to any urban rate which he would be paying for any non-agricultural buildings on his land, uh, because just now 
mean, apart from maybe stocking uh, rates and things like that, which he has, and I know that he's not in favour of that sort of thing, um, it, it really doesn't have to contribute anything, uh, you know, towards um, public funds with his land holdings. Um, he's got to make a return to the Danish uh, uh, Danish Treasury for his land holdings everywhere, whether they're in Denmark or abroad, and that includes Scotland, of course. But just now he doesn't need to make that uh, uh, make basically much of a, a contribution towards uh, public funding in Scotland uh, whatsoever. Um, so, what a person on average annual earnings of 26,500 would save if we brought in this system, um, as, uh, you know, as, as illustrated here. Um, you currently pay income tax and national insurance, and these figures are all taken from uh, uh, publicly available information. Uh, these are average figures which um, have been provided. Council tax for a kind of average house in that price range. Um, VAT and other consumer taxes in the year. Uh, and um, then the AGFR on a modern seven-day tax bill I've shown as well. So the total you, you could potentially save would be about 6000 nearly £7,000 um, if we abolished all taxes and brought in this system instead. Okay, now here's some examples. Um, uh, Balmoral Castle, for example. Um, currently, the band H annual council tax is, is less than £2,700 for the castle. Uh, with AGFA under this system, uh, we go up to £140,000 a year. And in addition to that, all the other buildings uh, and the land itself would also be charged. Um, the former co op HQ in Glasgow, the coffin ended between Morrison Street and Paisley Road. Um, that site, actually, the building uh, uh, was lying uh, derelict for a number of years, or semi-derelict, uh, and was con contributing nothing to public funds. Uh, and then there was a fire in 2013, uh, and the property had to be demolished. Uh, the owners who belong to our, 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 our Belfast-based company have done nothing with the site. They got the insurance money. They didn't even have to contribute towards the... Uh, the police and the fire brigade, etc. So that's a site that's basically just lying as a, as a hole in the ground now, and it was an eyesore for many, many years. Uh, but under Agfer, they would have to have been paying over 200000 a year for it. Um, Jordan Hill School, which I think is the only um, actually um, publicly funded school in Scotland out with the local authorities. There might be another one, but I think that's this is the end of Glasgow. Um, it, uh, it's in Jordan Hill, obviously. There's a primary department, a secondary department, um, and it's got quite handsome playing fields with it as well. Uh, the ag for in it would be over £600,000. But when you compare that towards the national insurance contributions and other things, employers' national insurance contribution, other um, taxes it's got to pay just now, it's roughly six or one half a dozen of the other. So if you introduced ag for it and charged it to schools, that would basically, um, you know, set each other off uh, against each other. So there, there really wouldn't be any increased liability there. Um, the Queensferry Crossing, uh, I worked out roughly that, you know, it would be probably over £800,000 for the uh, Queensferry Crossing. Now. Uh, Helensborough um, in uh, the Grass Verges. Now, if you, um, if you know Helensborough at all, it was um, developed in the late 18th, early, early 19th century, and a grid pattern. 
Uh, and um, a feature of it is the verges, which are around um, all the basically all the gardens, with the lovely cherry blossom trees, etc. Um, but the the owners of the houses don't actually own the verges; uh, they're owned by Lussie Estates, the Cahoon family. Uh, and um, but Lussie Estates refuse to cut the grass and maintain the trees, and it's basically just expected that the owners of the the houses will do that. But if you want to get, if you're a house owner there and you want to get access to build maybe a new garage or entrance into your your, your grounds or something like that, you've got to pay a ransom of probably between fifteen and twenty-five thousand pounds to Lussie Estates just to get their permission to do that. Uh, you still got to pay for the physical building of the the the, um, the entrance etc but lots of states do that and, and they make they're making a pretty handsome return on this every year alone um but they pay nothing for the ground which they own in the town itself but under my system they would be liable to pay somewhere in the region of you know 1.6 1.7 million pounds for all these verges which they they own and there'll be other examples of this up and down scotland of of big landowners that you know that are still creaming money off of things where they don't make any contribution at all to their maintenance and repair stock with this system. Um, uh, Rothy Marcus here, uh, just for the land, um, it would be I've calculated about 2.2 million that would be the, the ag for on that. Um, Murrayfield, um, it would be 2.7 or thereby, it would be the payment that would be due uh, for it. And BA Systems in Glasgow, um, for their two yards, there's Governor in Scotston. Uh, the ag for in that would be probably about £13 million a year, but that is significantly less than uh, the, the profit which they, they generally make uh, uh, a year from basically their Glasgow, uh, their Glasgow activities. Uh, so it would actually be, although they, you know, so they, they, if they ran their operation from Glasgow as opposed to running it from down south, uh, then uh, their, uh, you know, their tax saving would be considerable, and that would in turn mean there'd be a benefit because they would have those funds to reinvest in Scotland because it would be to their advantage to do it here, uh, because you know they weren't having to pay corporation tax and all these kind of things which they're, they're paying just now. Uh, 180 hectares in Easter House. Now, this was a site which um, the the council, the old Glasgow Corporation, demolished the. Uh, the the properties years ago, I think it's probably in the 1970s. Uh, they've done nothing with it apart from grass it over. They left the street, as you can see, the street lights up and the pavements, uh, but they've done nothing with it. It's contributed nothing, uh, you know, towards the um, the local population at all. Uh, they're now planning, uh, you know, to build houses on it or get it developed. Uh, but that site uh, with no development is probably worth, an I for terms, over 18 million pounds a year. Uh, and if they had, they had modest two-storey properties on it, there would be, there'd be about 50, 54 million pounds a year uh, created, uh, which would make the place, you know, much more pleasant and give people decent housing uh, and, uh, you know, improve the lot of, of, of living, uh, living in that particular area of the city. And the places, Glasgow's riddled with these, these sort of sites, you know, there's, there's hundreds of them, maybe not quite as big as 180 hectares, but they're all over the place. Um, this is a wee development in uh, St Andrews, I think, which is being built just now. Um, it's a wee one-bedroomed flat, £1,500. Um, this is a cottage. This was actually a cottage that we had uh, for 25 years in northeast of Scotland in Sandend, St Nine, um, and that was our cottage. So the um, 
two bedroom cottage with a living room kitchen. Uh, and, um, you know, it'd be about £2,000 a year for that. Uh, this is a property in Sunny Law Drive in Paisley, uh, built by John Lawrence way back in the 1950s. And again, it's a two bedroom house, quite a small house, um, and about 2160 um, Inverness, uh, this was one of the, the houses that was built for the Inverness Housing Expo, that some of you might remember. It was quite a big house. Um, a rather nice house, I thought, and um, the um, the ag for in that is just over ten thousand pounds. Um, Crow Road in Glasgow, a big um, red sandstone Edwardian uh, tenement flat, uh, really su quite substantial, um, and it's over to seven thousand pounds there. And then the Russell Institute in Paisley, uh, which is um, was built for the the health service originally, uh, it's been restored. And it's now you can wear heavy so thank you for on that one. Uh Golf Club at the Largs. It's included course is coming in about forty thousand uh, pounds a year. Um I don't know you still hearing me all right? Okay. Um now this property, the Cromlick at Sandbank. Can you hear me, Ruth? Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Okay. Right. That, that's fine. Uh, this property is a rather unusual Victorian house with huge grounds in Dunoon. And um, it was just my luck that when I was doing the uh, a presentation in Dunoon a couple of years ago, the owner of this house was in the audience. And he just about had a heart attack when he saw that he was going to have to be paying a considerable amount in, uh, in Agfa. But I started to interrogate him. And I said, how many people live in that house? And he says, oh, it's just me. And I said, how many bedrooms have you got? He says, eight. And I said, well, I said, maybe we're sort of trying to tell you something. You know, if you feel that you can't afford Agfer on it, then, you know, how are you afford affording to maintain it? Because come, ownership just doesn't include the entitlement to own. There's also an obligation to maintain uh, and uh, I said, have you thought of either dividing it up or maybe selling a bit of ground or anything like that? Um, anyway, the, the the story goes, I'm informed that actually uh, within six months he'd sold the property. So, um, you know, maybe I had taken a leaf out of my suggestions and uh, and that's what that's what happened there. Uh, so next one, Nardini's in Largs. Um, it's a single story building now. It's about 47,000 did be paying. Uh, the townhouse in Kirkcaldy worked out about 144000 uh, And then, so, the consequences for you are no tax on income or endeavour, no tax on purchased goods and services, no tax on inheritance or capital, uh, no need for tax advisors, so if they're chartered accountants, they're going to have to find something else to do. Uh, there's no council tax or commercial rates, uh, no business taxation, uh, and there's no adverse effect on the market value of your house or business premises because we're not assessing it on that basis. Uh, and there is certainty of how much you pay at the start of any given year because with the current tax systems, we don't know how much tax we pay at the start of the year uh, for the, the year preceding, whereas under this system, you know exactly how much you'd be paying at the start of the year um, uh, and be able to budget accordingly. Also, you'd have a much higher disposable income um, uh, to spend as you see fit, uh, opportunity to buy land as communities or individuals at low prices provided you pay the ag for levied on it. 
And every, I've also included within this, as I mentioned, you know, that every man and child would have a universal citizen's income of, of 200, roughly £200 a week, uh, replacing most social security uh, payments. Uh, and I'm suggesting that 10% of everyone's weekly citizen's income uh, is invested in a menu for Scottish businesses through the investment bank. So everyone has an actual personal interest in our economy. So nobody would be excluded from having a personal interest in, in the Scottish economy. Now, consequences for the big landowners, well, initially they might not be able to sleep at night. Uh, there would be a rush by them to offload uh, either by sale, rent, or give it away even, uneconomic land in buildings, thus initially reducing the market price substantially of land. They won't keep land which doesn't provide sufficient income to pay the AGPA. Uh, but they will benefit from all the other assets not subject to inheritance or other wealth or capital taxes. And it will be in their interest to develop, diversify, um, and maintain, etc., land that they retain. And they won't claim ownership of land which is unproductive, which they currently do uh, because of unspecific titles. The ones I usually suggest is the, the Duke of Argyll. Uh, historically, the title deeds to the Duke of Argyll said, all inhale the lands of Argyll. And that was it. No plans or anything. Uh, so that if you've got a dispute with the Duke of Argyll over what you own and what he owns, then you've got to have a pretty good, accurate plan in your title deeds. Um, otherwise, you're basically in a hiding to nothing because he owns the whole of Argyll under exception of what's been sold off or conveyed um, uh, you know, since then. Um, now, the position with Agfer is because the owner of the land or property must make the return to the land, uh, the, to Revenue Scotland, that is indicating the total extent of what you own and your liability. So if you do that, but as a big landowner, and then, you know, at a later date say, well, I actually own more land than that, you know, through the land register with maybe a title dispute, a boundary dispute, then that basically is an attempt to, to defraud uh, Revenue Scotland, uh, if you're claiming, on the one hand, you don't own as much land, and on the other hand, you are claiming you are. So it would, it would resolve so many of these problems, problematics, uh, uh, title conditions, etc., and boundaries, which the, the land register, you know, has and the courts just now actually have to, uh, have to deal with. Um, so it would be a big boon to completing the actual land register because it's a big problem for the land register to complete it just now because of these big historic titles, which are pretty inspecific in general. Okay, uh, for local authorities, it would increase their budgets and there could be further devolution of power. They could actually set their own AGFR uh, and uh, they'd also be saving an employer's national insurance contribution as well as some other tax liabilities that they have. But they would need to manage or dispose of their land and property portfolio to meet the, the Ag for charge because it applies to public land or land in public ownership as much as land that's in private ownership. Uh, it would help the housing shortage because it would release surplus land. Uh, it would reduce their bureaucracy quite considerably. Uh, and there would be a major reduction in empty properties and derelict sites. So it would actually improve the environment and the look uh, particularly of our urban landscapes that the uh, properties and land that have been lying derelict for donkey's years are actually now having something done with them. Okay, so the consequences for Scotland are the government of certainty of source and the amount of public revenue every year that started every year, which it doesn't have just now. 
it would have substantially more public and private funds to invest in Scotland's future and abolish poverty. Uh, and I've not even included the wealth from our seas, uh, which we could uh, invest in sovereign funds for future generations. Um, we can become a true property owning and sharing democracy by ensuring that, first of all, people get their universal um, citizens income, plus a small portion of that is invested on their behalf every year. Um, and it would encourage businesses to set up and invest in Scotland because basically we'd know when they were preparing uh, to set up a business what it was going to cost them. Uh, and uh, we, we know that um, the first five years of a business are the most dangerous because, you know, one year your profits can go up, next year your income drops away down. You know, it doesn't keep constant. Uh, and because of the vagaries of the tax system, you can be hit with a tax bill uh, when you least expect it or, um, you know, you find difficulty with your liquidity. So this is a this this would be one means of um, helping businesses establish uh, in a firm footing uh, without, as I say, the vagaries of the current um, taxation systems which we have in the UK. Uh, also, it would encourage immigration of high end, uh, spending um individuals, but that would be subject to the conditions we impose. Um, Scotland and Britain historically has been an open door to people buying property in, in, um, you know, in Britain, uh, whereas countries such as Denmark, uh, Norway too, I think, uh, and others, um, you know, they, they restrict, they usually have a residence um, uh, condition, maybe five years before you can buy something you're actually going to occupy as your main residence. We don't have that in the UK. So it would be up to the Scottish Parliament to decide under what terms and conditions we would uh, allow uh, foreign individuals to come in and buy property um, uh, in our country. Uh, our public funds, our public finances would always be in credit. We wouldn't need to borrow under this system because we're basically, uh, the, the government is receiving the money on a monthly basis um, uh, as, uh, as they go. Uh, it reduces the bureaucracy of government. I mean, the cost of, of the taxation systems in the UK are, are, are huge. They're into billions of pounds. HMRC employs, I think, around about 65 million people. Uh, sorry, 60, uh, 65,000 people. Um, so it's a huge cost. Uh, whereas this, this um, the bureaucracy of, of, of operating this system requires very, very, very little in the way of uh, of people by comparison, uh, and most of the work can actually be done by algorithms uh, with the way technology has developed uh, in, um, you know, in, that, uh, in that regard. Um, it can end the black market. I mean, the black market, to a large extent, is, is involved in, in people avoiding taxation, uh, whether it's you know, getting somebody to do a homer uh, or um, you know, avoiding VAT, so they're not declaring the VAT, etc., and all this kind of stuff. Um, that uh, because you're not having VAT or income tax and things of that nature, uh, to a large extent, not all, but to a large extent, you know, you could end the black market. Um, I've called it Scotland's Darien Revenge. You know, who needs tax havens if you've got a system like this, which is very transparent and just um, indicates what. Uh, uh, um, the owner of land or property, etc., would be liable to pay at the start of the year. Um, and with the introduction of the universal citizen's income, you know, we can really vanquish poverty. I mean, £200 a week for every man, woman and child uh, is a substantial amount of money for people actually to get to, you know, fund their 
fund their lifestyles, it, it would really lift them out of poverty. Uh, that's a figure, and it's, it's, it's possible, you know, through this particular system. Um, now, where does this all come from? So, there are huge areas of privately owned, derelict and empty land and floor space in urban Scotland. Massive areas of it. Uh, there's huge areas of publicly owned land and floor space um, uh, not contributing to national uh, revenue. And even the Land Commission has accepted that in their vacant and derelict land uh, task force. Uh, and they even admitted that over 60% of that is in the public sector. So it just shows you how much, you know, this, the public sector have been sitting on stuff doing nothing for years. Um, and, and in addition to that, you know, there's a lot in the private sector uh, as well, both not just in urban areas, but, you know, in rural areas too, which have just been sitting contributing nothing towards public funds. Uh, and apart from buildings, uh, basically all of rural and urban uh, lands contributing nothing to national revenue. Um, we've got areas owned by charities like the National Trust, not really contributing very much to national revenue. It would be up to policymakers again to decide, you know, if there were some mitigation to be done so that they, they weren't liable to pay, you know, all uh, all the um, the AGFA, which they would otherwise have to pay. But that would be something to exemptions and reliefs would need to be something, you know, decided by uh, by Parliament. Um, and there are also significant areas of public open space, um, which basically are not stewarded, uh, and they are a public uh, public asset funding source. You know, if you think of things like the the, the verges around motorways and dual carriageways and all that kind of stuff, um, the, the, they're not they're really not thought of so much as an asset, but there is a potential there uh, to do exciting things. In South Korea, for example, um, around the middle of their motorways. They have um, they have solar panels, you know. There's a, just one example, you know, of what we could do. It's just about thinking about land in a different way and how it can, you know, how it can contribute towards uh, public funds. Um, so the options there are options under devolution because we could bring this in under devolution as well as under independence. Um, it can be introduced under Section 80I of the Scotland Act, which has been amended a few times since, say, 1998. Um, the ACFID is paid directly to Revenue Scotland, so there is no need to involve HMRC in this because um, the money comes direct to Revenue Scotland and not to HMRC. Under the current arrangement, uh, income tax which uh, on earned income, which is to, uh, to go to the Scottish Government, um, I see Kate Forbes was saying that it takes two years for us to get that money from the time it's paid to the, the um, HMRC, who then take a cut by way of a, a fee, an administration fee, she gets the net figure two years after we've actually paid the income tax. Under this system, she gets it right away. She gets it on a monthly basis. Um, so um, that's a, a huge benefit for, for public funding. Um, if we were still, if we're doing this under devolution, uh, we would still need to pay the UK imposed taxes um, uh, as well as um, as Agfa, but um, the Scottish government, for example, set a rate, a zero rate of income tax, uh, which would mean that you know that would be quite a considerable saving for for, for taxpayers, um, and uh, you know you wouldn't have council tax or these other sort of taxes. So it would expose the the deficiencies in the the GERS guesstimates uh, for Scotland if we were to do that. 
And it would also give the, the councils the opportunity to charge their own land types, designating all areas of Scottish government responsibility as local, uh, which is permitted under the schedule to the Scotland Act. Uh, and we'd also have the power to exempt or relieve certain land holdings to say charitable uh, charities or public land uh, from AGFA. Um, now, how Scotland becomes a truly property-owning democracy, an entrepreneurial dynamo? Well, as I said, 10% of the universal citizen's income would be invested uh, uh, on behalf of every citizen. Uh, citizens could cash in their bond at the end of each year if they wished, but at least one year's investment would have to be uh, retained. Uh, and that would produce a minimum of £5.5 billion a year of Scottish money to invest in, 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 in Scottish business uh, and the Scottish economy. And to put that in some sort of context, um, the new Scottish Investment Bank uh, is getting £2 billion over the first 10 years from the Scottish government. Uh, so this is a huge increase in the sort of level of, uh, of funding which would be, uh, would be available to invest in, in Scottish enterprise. And that means that everyone, absolutely everyone, would have a stake in the country's economy. Um, and it would give Scottish entrepreneurs a constant um, source of loan funding. It wouldn't be foreign funding. It would be um, Scottish funding. Uh, young people could build up substantial capital to help in their lives by, you know, the, the, their money being put away or, uh, or some of their, their um, um, citizens' income being invested for them while they're growing up. Uh, and there would be a menu of funds. It doesn't have to just be national projects. It could be locally allocated too. There could be a provision for that. Um, and it frees the creators and entrepreneurs to develop their skills and businesses and trade both globally and locally. So it basically means that they don't need to worry. They've got a basic income uh, to fall back on. Uh, so they're not dependent in the first few years of their business, you know, basically to make ends meet, to keep the wolf from the door. So it has a fantastic benefit there. Um, and how it addresses the challenge of globotics. Now, globotics is basically the effect of globalization and robots on the economy and how that will develop over the years. And it could be quite a scary project, a prospect for a lot of people because it's, it's estimated that um, there's something like between 60 and 70% of all the jobs that we do today will be taken up by robots within the next 10 to 20 years, even in particularly white collar jobs, which are the ones to a large extent, which have been protected in the past. But this gives you the UCI that we're funding through the uh, AGFA, you know, it gives people uh, the opportunity of a financially independent life, even if most human jobs are replaced. Uh, it also gives you the opportunity to acquire a wee bit of marginal land if you want to do something with it. Land's quite a good thing to spend your time if you're going to have more time to do things uh, as well. Um, and um, the, uh, you know, as, as our public funding is obtained from our land and not through the variables such as tax and income or consumption, uh, there will be significant changes in employment, but that won't be, uh, uh, that will not affect the, the actual amount which can be ingathered in, in, in AGFA unlike, you know, in VAT, which depends on how much we buy, and income tax and depends on how much we're, we're earning. So uh, there's also, uh, as I say, over the next 50 years, 
50 years. Shelter, the, the, the most sheltered jobs will be those which are creative. So that's in the arts, the intellectual and social ones, empathetic ones. Um, so the UCI will give people, you know, a, a financial um, uh, embrace, basically, uh, and also give them the time and opportunity to develop knowledge and expertise through higher and further education. If we're not working as long, you know, then uh, the time, extra time that we've got, you know, this gives us their opportunity. Um, and provided that, you know, uh, this uh, um, Globotics is harnessed and, and accepted the challenge by our government and they invest in it, um, then, you know, the work-life balance of people should improve. So rather than being a, an economy which encourages overtime and all that kind of stuff, you know, we change the culture um, to maybe not working so many hours in the week, uh, but having, having the wherewithal, you know, to live a fulfilling, a fulfilling life. Um, so the options under independence are by funding all public services. Scotland does not rely on the volatility of oil revenue. We still have it. We wish. We don't rely on the largest UK taxpayer. Uh, we do not impose any personal or business taxation, but we can increase public revenues, I've shown. Uh, we can still impose behavioural taxes, such as minimum pricing and, and also, you know, other, other taxes to you know, uh, uh, that are targeted towards ill health or whatever, such as um, maybe gambling or uh, um, alcohol and, uh, and that sort of stuff. Uh, we can avoid government borrowing. It's not affected the currency that we, we take, so we can, we can make a decision on that, you know, based on a fairly uh, good position that uh, we are in a strong position if we don't need to borrow internationally to decide what currency we use. Uh, and we have control over our economy and we can encourage spending within Scotland. Uh, so can it be introduced very quickly? Well, it can, because Revenue Scotland already exists. Uh, it's an arm of the Scottish government. It's not part of HMRC. And it already collects some taxes like land and building transaction tax. And it already integrates with the land register. It works very closely with them. The software for online registration already exists. It's not a, it's, this, this is not a new science by any manner of means at all. Uh, there are readily adaptable um, software out there in the market. Um, and you have online facilities to measure the extent of properties such as daftlogic.com. Uh, Scottish Government also has uh, the Land Register, their Scotland site, which is beginning to, to measure these things too. Or you can just use a tape measure. I mean, it's as simple. Simple as that, basically. Um, and then, there we go. Uh, and also, there's no need for cooperation, as I said, with the UK government to introduce this, which is a major headache, which I know that the Scottish finance ministers have, uh, that they don't know what their budgets are going to be because they're waiting to hear what, uh, what the, the block grant's going to be from Westminster, and that's delayed and delayed and delayed as it was last year. Um, and the Land Register of Scotland already has what's called a cadastral plan, which is a massive plan of Scotland, which basically charts all the, all the properties with title deeds which are registered there. Um, uh, now, about 60-odd percent, I think, of all properties are now led, registered in the Land Register, but uh, the other 35% uh, are, are recorded in the General Register of Seasons, which is the older register that's been going since 1617. Uh, and basically, in order to expedite uh, the registration, uh, the completion of the land register. Um, basically, what would happen is that when uh, the owner of a property 
registered for uh, for AGFA, um, they would be able, to, if the title wasn't registered in the land register, they would be able to draw down an ordnance survey map uh, and indicate on that the extent of their property. And that would actually automatically kick in to the land register as well to commence the completion of the register of that title too. So it would uh, uh, kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. There we go. Now, um, just to give you an indication, all I've said is that it, this is basically uh, the AGFR as I'm showing it is um, is based on um, the land surface, uh, etc., uh, within uh, within Scotland, uh, and uh, you know the the the, um, the the bottom of our locks, but not our uh, our, um, our our seabed, etc. But it would be possible uh, if in the future. Uh, a Scottish Parliament decided that they also wanted to charge uh, an AGFR on the mineral rights in Scotland because in most title deeds in Scotland, you don't own the mineral rights under your property. They are owned uh, or were reserved by either the Crown, um, local authorities, uh, the Kirk, uh, former landed estates um, and people like that. So uh, they, they have separate titles for, for most um, uh, land uh, or, or mineral rights in Scotland. So it would, in theory, be possible uh, in ours to charge uh, a separate ag rate uh, for that. And then there's also our exclusive uh, economic area, um, the area uh, within the red boundaries. Uh, and that's five times our land area. Uh, and uh, the bottom of the sea is land, of course. So it would be possible for the Scottish Government, Scottish Parliament, you know, to consider uh, sometime, maybe in the future, of actually assessing a, an AGFR rate uh, for our, um, our, our seabed, for activity, for licences and all that kind of stuff uh, on our seabed. Uh, so here's a couple of last um, slides here. This is just of showing, giving an indication of somebody on average earnings, uh, what their position is net income wise, um, under uh, the present system without AGFR, devolution with AGFR, and independence with AGFR. And you can see just now that their, their net income is about 15.2 uh, under devolution because they'd be getting uh, the universal assistance income of 10,000. It's gone up to about 20, just over 26,000. But with independence, it would be nearly 31,500. So basically, independence is, you know, indicates that it's the, the most favorable. Um, system of government for us if we want to you know exploit this to the fullest uh, but what's this really all about it's actually about more than taxation or public funding it's about the stewardship of how we land how we deal with land to maximize its economic social environmental potential it's about reconnecting urban scots with the land uh, and it provides an outlet if we've got more time in our hands because there's so much of it nothing's done with um, it's a dependable public funding from land, so it allows us to choose a better work-life balance, as I've mentioned. Um, it provides true independence with a new type of economy, which isn't driven by the global market. Um, and it can also provide a real democratic ownership of our assets. And finally, the Great Steward of Scotland, that's one of Prince Charles' titles, but I actually think it's the Scottish Government's responsibility, you know, to steward our land property in the interests of all of us. Uh, so, and I've called, called it happiness. I reckon this would make most people, if not all of us, very, very happy indeed. And that uh, the question is put, you know, are you a believer? 
So how much Agfa would your household pay? If you want to email me, you can email me your name, property address, postcode, house type uh, at that um, address, and I'll try and work it out. I've got one or two to do. Um, sometimes if a house only has a, um, has a house name and not a number, uh, it takes me a wee while to, to, to check out the actual location of the, the particular property. But uh, I might have one or two extra questions to ask in, in, in certain locations. But I can generally give you an indication of what, uh, what it would be under this system. And finally, I've written a book on this called Annual Ground Rent, Floor and Roof Rent. Annual Ground, Floor and Roof Rent. Um, it's, now been, um, it's now been published. It's £10 for, uh, for the book, uh, including post and packing. Uh, and, um, you know, it's available from myself or uh, from annualgroundrent.com. Uh, and uh, it goes into greater detail of, uh, you know, what I've been trying to uh, sort of explain tonight. So that's the, that's the presentation. I'm delighted to take um, any, um, uh, any questions that you, you might have to make. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Graham. That's great. Um, we have got, um, I had a couple of um, questions put in before the, um, mm -hmm. the evening, and then I've been making notes as they've come up during the chat. Okay. Uh, the first one that came in, it wasn't really a question, it was, it was more a statement by um, Bernard Page. And then can you start again, please? If we wanted to stay in the EU mm -hmm. or go into the EU, um, there is a requirement for 15% VAT on a lot of goods as a minimum and 5% on other items. Yep. This gets rid of VAT, so does this mean we could not rejoin the EU? Mm -hmm. uh, the position is you're quite right. You know, under the under the current rule, we've got to have some form of VAT to be a member of the EU. Uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't negate the system. All it means is that we don't benefit as much from the from the savings which I'm proposing. But just as you know, if we if we introduce this under devolution, uh, as I've indicated, you know there are UK taxes, uh, UK imposed taxes which we need to pay. So and VAT being one of them, uh, so the, the the position would be that uh, uh, if we decided to to join rejoin the EU uh, and we couldn't negotiate with the the the, the, the EU to to dispense with uh, VAT, uh, then well VAT would be an add-on which we need to would need to pay. That's right. Uh, but that would be a decision. That, that that would be part, I suppose, of the decision that we would make as to whether we thought it was beneficial to be in the EU or not. Uh, I'm quite agnostic about that position just now. I must say, land values are quite variable across Scotland. So in areas like Edinburgh, they're high. Mm -hmm. In the Highlands, they're very low. So I live in a a two-acre plot with mm -hmm. a listed building, and I'm retired. Mm -hmm. So I reckon I would be paying about eighty thousand a year, mm -hmm. and my pension is thirty something thousand a year, uh -huh. just okay. over. So effectively, I'm bankrupt if this comes in. Well, there would be obviously there's no development value on the land. Yeah, yeah. It's a listed building, so it cannot be developed. Uh huh. Okay. So right. it, it's effectively I'm the, a custodian of a building in a quarry. Mm -hmm. that, that would not allow development around it. So are you suggesting that local authorities allow any development in, list, 
in around listed buildings so that people can realize an asset no no i mean the position is that planning still exists and planning would exist so you, one would require planning permission and you know how planning develops would no doubt be influenced by this system but the planning planning regime would still exist uh, and that's not to suggest for a moment that you know that this system would um would basically encourage more um shall we say inappropriate development or development which doesn't you know take uh, take account of uh, green belt and other issues other issues like that but as regards what you're saying about your, your own situation and um, i've been trying to find out what percentage of the population fall into a, a similar position to yourself and uh, there are no actually uh, publicly available um, pieces of work to indicate that that's the case uh, uh, so I, I i looked at helensborough because i live near helensborough and it's got a lot of big houses there's a few folk that um, that live in them on their own, uh, and from what I can gather from my knowledge of Helensborough, it's about one percent of people who are living in fairly uh, large, uh, handsome either properties or properties with gardens uh, that one would uh, anticipate have, um, shall we say, restricted income. Uh, so it's a relative. I reckon it's a relatively small percentage. Uh, of the population, but this isn't this isn't designed, you know, to force people out of their homes right away by any manner of means. <laughs> there would have to be a mitigation involved, you know, maybe for the first five to ten years, uh, uh, so that we we change the culture in this country of you know how we look at the properties that we have and own uh, and how we maintain them. Um, and I would reckon after say a period of maybe the first five to ten years, uh, you know, people would. Because they would knew, because they knew how Agfor worked, they would um, rearrange their affairs in a certain way. So they might say, right, okay, uh, when I get older and the kids are away, etc., uh, you know, I'm not going to need this big house, uh, and I should really be looking maybe to move to something else. But the, the, there's there's no intention, you know, that that people should be uh, pushed out their house because of their that they can't afford initially. This is involving a change of culture and it's quite possible to have a mitigation in place where, for example, the AGPA could be deferred until somebody sells the house and it's taken off the price or you know some other arrangement like that. It's certainly possible to but, think But it would that. never be valuable enough to get that money back. So that's the problem, isn't it? Um, well, not, 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 ne not necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, it's. Um, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's different, different ways of looking. First of all, we're looking, as I say, we're looking at a, a, a very small percentage of the population, a really small percentage of the population, uh, and so that the actual cost of putting in mitigation for that small percentage is not, you know, in the scheme of things, going to be, be a huge amount of money. But um, a lot, from my experience as a, as a solicitor, um, a lot of people um, who, who did have fairly big houses, uh, who were living alone and, and died, and their, you know, the, the, most of their estate was in their house, uh, okay, they might think, well, uh, you know, it's a shame that, you know, my, my children didn't benefit from that. Um, but, um, you know, that's what happens in life you know you have these things and uh, you know they have inheritance tax and all these other sort of things which 
that, that there's a liability to pay. So it, it, it's balance, balancing one against the other. But I mean, my, my own feeling would be that we're, we're actually looking at a change of culture here. And if the if the benefit is um, that um, we can um, we can actually make life better for you know 99% of the people in this country, I think that's a pretty good uh, pretty good achievement. Uh, whereas, but as long as we're sympathetic, you know, to the needs of people who might otherwise feel a bit marginalised by it. <laughs> hi, hi. I'm having to look through my points. Uh, my first one, Graham, was: What does private forestry come under? Uh huh. Well, well, well. Forestry and woodland is the you know it's the same whether it's owned by a private individual or company or whether it's owned by the Forestry Commission. Uh, so it, it's it's got it's uh, it's basically got its own own land type under my illustration. Okay, uh, in Argyll alone, you probably realise, especially here in Kintyre and uh, Mid Argyll, there's loads of ransom strips all over the place. Duke of Argyll was very very good at that kind of thing, and still are. And in fact, um, as uh, um, descendants of sideways here that own a lot of land that have the same thing. I, I'm wondering if the land registry at this stage actually has a list of all that. Uh, well, they have where, the, where the, um, the big estates have been registered in the land register. Now, um, Baclue Estates, they've completed their registration in the land register. Um, they did that as an exercise two or three years ago. Um, but the land register is still... Um, uh, working away with the the big historic landed estates to um, to um, you know complete their registration. Um, similarly, it's not just the the big private landowners. The public landowners are the same. I mean, the the Forestry Commission. You would imagine, given that the Forestry Commission was just established after the First World War, that their title deeds would be quite um, uh, you know quite exact and precise with plans. But there's been quite a ding dong battle, understand, in the land register with the Forestry Commission about what they own and what they don't own. Um, you've got the likes of Network Rail, whose title deeds basically go back to the uh, the, the development of the railways in, in the, the the 19th century, and a lot of these railways were developed uh, with title deeds that didn't have any plans at all. Uh, they were just descriptions. Uh, some had plans, but they weren't very accurate. But um, when nationalisation came in. Um, they, they, they really didn't do anything to, um, to tidy up the titles so that um, uh, Network Rail, most of their title deeds, they don't even know what they own in many respects. So that's another one where a public sector, you know, um, uh, has, uh, has uh, <coughs> not been particularly um, attentive to that. But, you know, you're right with the ransom strips. I mean, I, I know we, we were looking at a property near Dunkeld not so long ago, and um, it was to be, uh, it was the first time it's been sold by the estate. It was a house with a wee bit of ground. Um, <clears throat> and specifically, they retained a ransom strip between the road and the actual grounds so that they could control that. Uh, and this, this, this would stop this because they would need to pay, the estate would need to pay the AGPA on the, on the ransom strips which they retained, uh, and these, these they, they hold on to that land because it doesn't cost them anything. Uh, uh, but if uh, land becomes a, a liability as well as an asset where you've got to pay the, the, the ag for every year, then they've then got to take that into consideration, you know, and is it worth holding on to or should we try and, and dispose of it? 
uh, instead of holding on to land and waiting until the government comes along and says, well, we're going to change the direction of this road, so we need to buy land from you in order to do that. So they just sit on that for maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years or more. And then one day they come along and Bob's your uncle, you know, they're making a fortune out of that. But in the meantime, they've done nothing with the land at all. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, so they've, they've benefited, you know, just in the fact that they, they own it as opposed to, or they might own it, as opposed to actually doing anything productive with it. And by productive, I don't mean just economically productive, you know, socially, environmentally, et cetera, too. My last point would be also, um, why would you allow overseas people to own land in Scotland? Can you make an argument for allowing them to own land in Scotland or property? Uh, well, I'd, I think there are some pretty good landowners in Scotland, uh, whether they're, they're, you know, they're, they're Scottish, British, Welsh. You know, Irish, Danish, and, or whatever. But there no, is. What I mean is that they, uh, they don't reside here. I, I don't object to somebody living here who owns mm -hmm. it. But it's when they're when they're actually absentee landlords. As a as a, I believe up at um, uh, Tom Chow, um, mm -hmm. it's actually a Malaysian landowner there, and there's a playground for him. So my, my my case there is about making an argument for people like that. Mm -hmm. Well, as I say. As I've said, that's for policymakers to decide. We've had an open, we've had an open door policy in this country about who can buy uh, buy property. Uh, it, you know, if, if government and parliament decides that you know we're going to restrict it uh, and say, yeah, there's got to be a residence um, position uh, or, or or limit the the amount somebody or some organisation can own. I don't, I don't really have a problem with that at all, not at all. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, we have just now a lot of landowners and a lot of property which is owned by offshore trusts and things of that nature. Uh, and um, actually trying to find out who are the beneficial owners of that, those, that land is really quite, uh, is quite difficult. Uh, with this system, the obligation is on the owner of the land, whoever it is, you know, to make the return. So that's actually disclosing the ownership. Uh, so that if they don't make a return and they don't make a return for three years or pay it, then they lose the land. That's basically it. So regardless of whether it's a, it's a Scot who doesn't make the return uh, for three years or it's a, you know, an individual from another country who doesn't make the return, you know, they're, they're, they're treated the same way in that they would, they would basically for, more or less forfeit um, the, the, the land holding which they have. Uh, and it also clears up the position that there are large, large pockets of land in Scotland. They're quite small, but they're, you know, cumulatively it's quite a lot, where there is no title or the, the person who had the title died, or it's what we call a lapse trust in legal terms and things like this. And um, that would be resolved too, because after the three-year period, uh, if there hadn't been a return made, then Revenue Scotland would fall there to that ground anyway. So that would resolve all these problems that have cropped up in the past of people saying, oh, I'm just going to try and, you know, claim that piece of ground, um, uh, etc. It doesn't happen quite so much since the land register came into being, but, you know, it has happened considerably in the past. Uh, so it would clear up that problem because there's an awful lot of areas of Scotland, particularly urban areas, where there might be a bit of land that's been lying derelict and really... Um, has taken away from the look of a town or a road or whatever, uh, and it's because there's a there's a there's an issue about who owns it. 
that that will be resolved because within the three years, the land register will know exactly who owns it. And if not, then it will, you know, it will belong to New Scotland on behalf of the state. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Elaine. Uh, Leah Dunn Barrett. Her, her questions were: um, How much would Donald Trump be paying on his two on his two golf courses? And does, <laughs> does, does any other country use this system? Right. Well, as far as Donald Trump, I reckon Donald Trump wouldn't be paying anything because I don't think he pays anything just now either. I think he uses other people's money for everything, but that's just a, an opinion that I've got. But you know, I can certainly work out whoever whoever owns the mini estate and. Um, and uh, down at Maidens, um, you know, I can, it's, it's pretty easy to work that out, to be honest, and uh, I might do that as, a, as an exercise. And as I say, if he didn't, um, if he didn't make the return, uh, and he, for three years it remained unpaid, then well, that would, uh, that would fall to, the, to Revenue Scotland. Uh, as regards other countries, there, there are other countries that have forms of um, land value taxation, annual ground rent, etc., um, but none, as far as I'm aware, has it like this. Uh, and the land, the land commission commissioned the um, Reading University uh, basically to to look at different forms of land value taxation around the world. Um, and uh, they produced this report, which was basically it was as if somebody had gone onto Wikipedia and just typed in, you know, land value tax and um, you know Singapore or somewhere like that, and then they did a cut and paste job. But they didn't actually, they didn't look at a system which is basically not based on, 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 on market value. Uh, because this system doesn't work on that. This system works on the basis of the, um, basically the, the extent of the land you've got and the property on it and the flooring, etc. on it. Um, and then works out on that basis. So... There is no other system in the world, as far as I can uh, I can judge, that has this, uh, this this system which I'm proposing. So it would be a nice first for Scotland if you know we managed to do it. And importantly, you know, if we did now address the issue of poverty, I think that is the greatest sin that we we, we have such poverty, um, you know, in our country. And if we can raise the funds, you know, to address that properly, so everybody has the potential of a of a fulfilling life, then I think that. That, that is the most important thing we should address um, uh, and if we can do that through this with independence uh, I'd be delighted to, uh, to do it. Thank you. Um, right we've got quite a few questions to get through so um, we need uh -huh. to move on. Um, Valerie Gold. And my question was would that would this impact um, more significantly, you know, and negatively on old age pensioners, particularly ones that live alone, <laughs> said she selfishly. <laughs> it's maybe similar to what the other lady was asking about earlier. <laughs> I haven't got a big house, but I'm thinking if you're on, I think maybe you've kind of covered this already in your answer to the other lady there. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it, it, I mean, it would depend, I suppose, on the size of the, the, the property you've got. Um, and if you're living alone and, you know, whether the, the extra £10,000 universal system income helps or whatever. But as I say, it's, it's, the bigger picture is the sort of culture of us developing a culture on how we look at property, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, how we look at a property and, you know, whether um, uh, one can have a, a, a more comfortable life, shall we say, having a property which maybe is not, you know, quite so... 
um, demanding of the of, of the cost of maintenance and repair and all these kind of things. Um, and that's it. But you know that that, that that's really what's what, what what's behind it. I'm thinking it might impact. You know, impact. I mean, I, I I take your point about the whole culture of it. I think it is a very, you know, it's a really novel idea in terms of big companies and big landowners. But I, I'm thinking it might impact particularly hard on elderly women because a lot of women have very low pensions. I think the the average woman's professional pension is something like 25% of the average male pension and also a lot of women are widows like the lady I'm sorry I've forgotten her name that's terrible is it Pat? Pat, Pat. Yeah Um, so and, and I'm thinking, you know, it might impact, I mean, women are already being impacted with the WASPy thing. I'm wondering if something like this might be another negative thing for elderly women. Well, as regards, first of all, pensions, I mean, the pensions in this country are ridiculously low. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm not in any way um, suggesting that they should remain the, the, uh, at the position they are just now. I mean, we're, we're basically, I, I have I've shown that, you know, uh, within this package, we have the, the funds that are already available, uh, public funds, plus I've increased these by, you know, 10%, uh, as well as the, you know, the, the university's income for everybody. So within that, within that there, there is huge potential to increase the state pension way above what it is just now. To get somewhere near, you know, maybe the Netherlands, which I think is probably they've got the best best state pensions. But um, so so that would be a possibility. Um, we can, as I said, policymakers can 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 vary can vary the the way that I've done this. There's no great problem about that. So if, if there are certain groups which are are, are particularly, shall we say, um, uh, badly affected by it, then you know a, a mitigation can be. Be, be inserted to deal with that um, but um, and also you know government if we're independent then government can start to impose conditions regarding employment in terms of employment etc you know to improve the you know the, the dreadful position that we still have regarding gender imbalance in employment I mean when I was an employee before I retired I mean if you're doing the same job regardless of whether you're a man woman or whatever you know you get the same pay if you're in the same sort of um, doing the same sort of sort of job, and I mean, I, I don't, I don't see why that that shouldn't be the case. But as I say, government would have the power, you know, to to address a lot of employment if we were independent, which they're unable to do just now because so much of that is a reserve power. Thanks very much, Bree. I think what you're saying is right. It's what we have to do is change the culture of thinking, because we're all coming at this as to how you know how much is it going to cost us. Whereas we really have to be looking at who benefits, how we benefit, and then how we would live as a much better society. So I think if we, because we're nearly comparing it to community charge or to rates, which is not the way to look at it. So I don't know if you've got any way of painting, getting people more involved in the culture that they will appreciate the new way of thinking about the land that we are custodians of. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's all down to that. Um, but uh, the very fact that there is an element, obviously, of self-interest that everyone has, the way they vote and all the rest of it. Um, but actually to see the, the, the considerable savings 
that uh, you know the vast majority of people will make uh, on what they pay in tax and all the rest of it just now through this. Um, uh, plus, as you say, the culture, plus the fact that you know they're getting universal income as well. Uh, that uh, really, and this is something you know, if, if people if people can see the money in their pockets, then you know they're 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 going to vote. They're vote, vast majority of people at the end of the day vote because you know of the um, what their life is like and what they'd like their life to be, and they want a fulfilling life free from poverty um, and, and and all these sort of challenges. And and this this gives us the opportunity because no one, as far as I can see, has actually ever looked. At the totality of Scotland's land before and said, gosh, there is so much that, you know, is just not being stewarded. It's not being used in any kind of sensible way at all. As I say, it's not just rural land, it's particularly urban land, uh, because it's urban land where actually the big money from a, a, a national point of view um, is, is uh, can be sourced Um and, uh, you know, as a result of that, you know, that does, it helps to change the culture if people, uh, if people find that they, you know, financially they're far better off as, as this system will undoubtedly provide. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Um, James Gray, I think you, no, James has gone as well. You want me to deal with that anyway? Yeah, if you could, please. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I've said, that 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 isn't intended that there would be taxes on on other things such as income or wealth or whatever. Um, and what I would I would well I would expect anyway is that within the first few years of this system being used, that government would review it, people would review it, and one of the things that they would review is you know how the the wealthy are. Um, are contributing towards our society, you know, whether they're being a beneficial contribution towards it or not. And it would still be open, uh, you know, to government to um, to introduce some form of wealth taxation, other forms of taxation uh, should, pardon me, <coughs> should, you know, that, 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 that be a decision uh, which is made. Um, this exercise was basically started uh, in order to show that Scotland could fund itself without any financial support from the UK taxpayers. Uh, and I think actually it does prove that we could do that. That's the exercise. Um, so um, say it's up to the policymakers to decide whether we went hell for leather and did a system like this, or whether you know we, we, we went for a, a system that had parts of this and parts of the existing tax. It's a very complicated tax system and we have in the UK just now. It does prove that we can we can fund ourselves and fund everything that we need to to do, and that was in my book was 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 the the object um, certainly the initial object um, of the exercise. Um, we can as as an independent country we can decide who we allow into our borders. Uh, we can decide you know who we allow to own property, um, and. Um, that's you know that is a that is a, a decision that, that that governments on our behalf uh, will make. And if we saw it was the case that uh, you know our um, um, our system of of living etc. you know was 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 under threat 
from abuses by people that were using our, our country as if they thought a tax haven, then well, you know, government take, can take issue with these things. I mean, I think um, although I don't know, know an awful lot about Switzerland, there's an awful lot of people that seem to think that Switzerland's a bit of a tax haven, uh, but it's an incredibly democratic country with the, the, the power invested in the cantons and local communities. Um, so, you know, there are, there are systems which we can develop um, and as we expect, we would develop going forward, you know, which would um, ensure that, you know, local democracy, uh, you know, um, basically had a, a sort of controlling interest in, in, the, in, in how our, um, you know, our country develops uh, and how we live. I'm going to jump now to Kenny McLaren, who's... Um... That's what I was going to raise was how this impacts on local authorities. Because I think sometimes councils are at the end of the food chain when it comes to um, public funds and having only really the council tax to raise their income causes too much hardship and you don't get enough back from the pain of, of raising it. And I think, I th could you explain a wee bit more about how it would work with your policy? Yeah, well, I've with this presentation, I've really only shown what a, a national rate would be. But there is no reason, within the book, I go into a wee bit more detail about the, um, uh, the devolving of power uh, and lands to local government. So just now, I mean, I think roughly, what's it, about 70, 75% of local government funding comes from the Scottish government, something like that. Yeah. It would be possible, you know, it would be possible to um, say um, that, uh, let's say that national, national government, in order to service national government, um, fifty percent of all the the funding which is raised is, is required for national government activity, and fifty percent for local government activity. It won't be that. I'm just saying that for the sake of argument. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, <clears throat> central government could charge a rate at fifty percent of what I'm proposing just now, and then leave it to the local authorities to charge their own rate for their own services, which would basically give local authorities far more independence about uh, you know how they chose to to spend their money what they um, and, and, and what and what they raised uh, which would be far healthier you know for democracy than than at present uh, I know that local government to a large extent is an agent of central government because basically implement central government's policies and education and that kind of thing um, but you know if you can give independence I think to to, 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 to local authorities to raise more of their tax, uh, or their income rather, um, and, and this could certainly be achieved through this system. Uh, you would find some local authorities, uh, possibly that would need any kind of assistance from uh, central government to, uh, uh, so they could possibly raise 100% of the income that they require. There would be other councils which wouldn't be in that position, so they would then look to the Scottish government to um, you know, um, bring their, uh, their funding up to the level that was required. Uh, but there is no reason why that couldn't be done. In addition to that, there is no reason why instead of having 32 councils, we couldn't have 400 councils or 100 councils or whatever, you know, the, the, the principle uh, applies. Um, and so this, this is something which could be a real driver and exercise in, in, in local government so that we have control of our own communities, uh, far more so than we, than we have today. Okay. Thanks. Um, this um, this actually ties in with something that um, Debbie Blackwood said um, earlier on about um, rather than going for the whole thing all at once, 
would it be possible to, to do it as a local uh, to replace the council tax first? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, it certainly it certainly would be possible to do that. Um, though obviously you wouldn't um, you wouldn't derive the the substantial benefits right from the start um, that you would if you you know you just uh, introduced it as a whole. Um, as I showed with under devolution, you'd still have to pay the the benefits under devolution, although there are benefits, are not as substantial as if we were independent. So the same thing would apply, you know, if you were just looking at it to say fund uh, fund local government, uh, you'd still have all these other sort of taxes that you would need to pay. And also the, the benefit of this is that generally speaking, um, introducing new taxes is very, very unpopular. Um, most governments just do not want to introduce new taxes because it's unpopular electorally. Uh, and also you find that um, the British system has become so complicated because when you introduce a new tax, generally there's always people out there looking to create loopholes. So you just add, add a bit layer of complexity onto it. So if you have a completely new system, you're starting from scratch. Uh, then you, you know you reduce the, the the potential for these complexities, um, and also it's a clean break. As I say, the Scottish government could just bring this in, and they don't need to bother with HMRC. HMRC would just wither in the vine, uh, basically as regards you know um, money that, that they thought they would be paying the Scottish government. We wouldn't need the block grant at all. Uh, we wouldn't you know so there would be big significant, really significant savings, not just financially. But, uh, you know, also in the, the time that's used to interact with them and argue with them and wait for the money coming. Uh, so I actually think that, you know, if policyholders will look at this and they agree that, you know, in principle, yeah, this works, uh, it would be electorally very beneficial for a government to bring this in. Because, as I say, you're talking about well over 90 percent of people benefiting substantially uh, in their pockets from you know what they're having to do, um, you know what they're having to pay just now. So I, 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 that that that's my that's my feeling about it. But it would it would be possible to bring it in, but it makes it much more difficult from an electoral point of view uh, to be as persuasive about it. Um, if you're not showing the financial benefits that people would have. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks, uh, Campbell Cameron. Um, um, I was going to ask, what, what do we do with the unproductive land? Um, you know, uh, what, what's your thoughts for the, you know, the two hundred twenty thousand acres belonging to whomever? Uh, do we turn that into a, a wildlife estate and, and charge folk to come and visit it, or we introduce the lynx and the wolf? Or what, what's your thoughts? And well, right, well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, the position is that really the potential is endless. Um, you know, uh, if, if you've read uh, Leslie Riddick's book about hutting uh, and the number of huts that there are in Norway as opposed to in Scotland, um, there's a real potential that, you know, land could be made available for people to, um, you know, to build their, their hut. Um, there's, a, you know, the potential for, for people, as I say, just to maybe buy an acre or so. It would hardly cost them anything or just acquire an acre or so, you know, just for the pursuit of, you know, exercising their dog or, or whatever. Uh, there's all sorts of things which could be done. The, the other thing is that because the actual, in the totality of the total amount being, being um, 
in funds here. Um, rural Scotland is actually creating, you know, not a huge amount. It's about one and a half percent of the total. So as a result of that, um, you know, if there were large estates, which basically um, had a lot of land, which was maybe mountain ranges and things like that, which, you know, weren't particularly productive or couldn't be turned to be particularly productive, then there is the possibility that we could have a, a proper national park in this country where government took over the bits for rewilding, etc., and that we had this wonderful tapestry of land from the, the borders, you know, right up to um, the high north and to the Northern Isles. Um, and, and, and that would be an area which, you know, could be, um, as I say, could be, could be rewild um, again. Um, also, you know, there's there's the issue of uh, we need more trees. I mean, even though we're, we're, we seem to be doing far better than the rest of the UK and growing trees, um, we still are a long, long way from the sort of percentage land cover which they have in other countries in Europe. Um, and so there's the potential for, 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 for growing trees as well. Um, uh, and, and forests and having having this the, the, the small the small forests or forests that are owned by individuals etc and small groups um, as opposed to um, you know the kind of big uh, forestry commission ones etc but you know there's there's some teen, there's some teen possibilities you could turn it into a wildlife park you could turn uh, you know you could have a um, you know a, a course for mountain bikes you know walking anything or, or, or everything and these are communities could do that uh, you know as well as as, as well as individuals uh, so there's, there's there's a real potential for whatever you can think you know um potentially you could you could use land for again subject you know to the planning regime and what you know planning authorities etc would um you know would allow um so um you know, well, the wonderful thing, Graham, is that the planning regime is up to us. Uh, and as uh -huh. a councillor, I used yep. to talk about this all the time. Mm -hmm. The public can change the planning regime, but we never take the opportunity to do so because when mm -hmm. it comes into the local plan review, it's a pretty dry thing normally, and people mm -hmm. don't engage with it. But if we want housing in the country, and I've always advocated the notion that every house you put in the country and put two people in, it soon becomes three. It's kind of magical. I don't know how that works, but it, it's always three. And that's your school role sorted out then. Housing in the countryside then becomes productive, um, and there's a real opportunity there. But somehow or other, we have to change the planning system from a town and country planning, which is what we teach in the universities. Yeah. Town planners get a job in Argyle and Butte or in Highland Council, and have no, have no tools with them other than what they've been taught at, at university, which is an aspect. Keep it yep. with you know. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, I agree entirely with that. Fact. I've proposed a few times to the SNP that we should have a policy of, of deemed planning consent for four homesteads in every farm in Scotland. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that would, that would drop the, the actual price uh, of these plots considerably if it was time limited. Uh, and uh, but you know it would encourage you know particularly young folk you know to either stay in the um, you know stay rurally um, or or come and live rurally and you know develop their homes and their families etc and work. As I understand, a similar property properties of the same size 
get taxed the same. Mm -hmm. But if one property, if two properties are being rented, so mm -hmm. the rent will for the, the property will reflect the amount of tax being paid. But if the two properties are of very different quality, so you've got a one from a landlord who really looks after the place and another that um, isn't so well looked after, they will be paying the same <coughs> um, tax. Therefore, we'll be charging the same rent for two qu different quality properties. How, does, how do we work around that one? Well, I mean, the rent which a landlord charges, you know, comes under separate legislation from what, you know, annual or AGFA would come under. Uh, and um, the, arguably the, the legislation um, protecting, shall we say, tenants, um, residential tenants uh, from the landlords need, need to be um, improved and enforced in many cases. Uh, so the quality of, of the, the property, you know, should be, um, you know, should, or, or the rent charged for the property should, should reflect, reflect the, the, the quality and the standard of the property. Uh, that, that, that contract between a landlord and a tenant, however, is governed by law, which is separate from uh, the, um, the, uh, the 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 Agfa legislation uh, which would be put in place, but I think what you would find first of all is that more land would become available. An awful lot more initially, an awful lot more land would become available because people that were either unwilling to pay the Agfa or couldn't pay it, you know, would would get rid of their get rid of their land. So you're going to have a, a very very low price and quite possibly no price at all in many areas. So that then gives us land on which houses can be built, half decent decent houses can be built, which we don't have just now. Uh, so the availability of, of, of houses should increase substantially. Uh, and that then, you know, basically takes the pressure off people accepting substandard houses from private landlords. Uh, and that, 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 that would be a result of this policy because one of the whole reasons of this is to make land available. Scotland is awash with land. We've got more land than probably we know what to do with as evidenced by the fact that people sit on it and do nothing with it for generations. But we have that land available. But once that land becomes a liability and you've got to pay ag for on it, a tax on it, if you will, then you know that changes the whole attitude uh, and the culture towards land. Uh, and that would then mean that, you know, um, developers, it could be the social side, housing associations, local authorities, private developers, even the states themselves would, you know, start to um, start to use that land for building. They would start to build houses subject to them getting planning permission, of course, uh, on it. Uh, so that in turn, you know, would basically would improve the quality of the housing that we've got. And, and hopefully one of the things which you would do, which is a separate issue, but is, is, is linked, is that uh, something like about 85% of all houses built in Scotland just now uh, are built by uh, the big builders. You know, your Bellways, Persimmon, George Wimpel, these kind of folk just now. Um, and that really restricts the choice that people have in the mainstream to, to, to buy a property. Whereas if you look at a country like Austria, it's the reverse. 
85% are all individually designed or whatever. They're not, it's not big builders. Um, so, you know, if we can change that culture, then that improves the architecture and the quality of the houses uh, and also what people will demand because an awful lot of what people demand just now is not what they demand, it's just what they can get. Uh, but if we can change that uh, culture so that the, the cost of the land comes a way, way down, then that means that, you know, if there is more money potentially spent in, in building the quality into property, then that I think that is something that we, uh, we should encourage. In terms of the quality of housing that's being built at the moment, for example, the passive house stand-up, mm -hmm. these houses are reduce um, fuel usage to heat them by yep. 85, 90%. Mm -hmm. But they initially cost more to actually build. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at people putting more money into these places up front. They need a return on their investment. Mm -hmm. That investment will be governed by how much tax they're paying. So they'll be looking to squeeze those houses into smaller plots of land if it's all based on the area of the house. So mm -hmm. we get into this, again, we get into the circle of the, the, the return on the investment, whether it's in the private sector or the rented sector. We'll, mm -hmm. the, the tax will decide, you know, is based on how big the house is. So I don't really see it solving those issues. Now that, well, I mean, the, the, the position is you've got to start from somewhere, and I agree with so, uh, an awful lot of what, what, what you have said, but the, I mean, the one, uh, one of the major things which dictates property is the cost of land. So if you can uh, extract an awful lot of that cost of land away, then that, you know, that, that helps considerably in the number of properties which, uh, which can be built. You've also got you know, building regulations which maybe need to be enforced a bit better than they are just now and improved. I actually happen to be on the, the, the Scottish Citizens Assembly on Climate Change, um, one of the 104 people that were chosen by random to, to be on this. Um, and we're, we're looking at things like that just now. Um, so, you know, the, 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 there's a lot of work to be done without a shadow of a doubt. But, you know, if you can start to make land available, which wasn't available before, um, then, you know, that, that, that is a good starter for 10. Uh, and, um, you know, the more houses that we can have built, uh, then, uh, then the, the more power that that gives to tenants, it also gives to, to, you know, to people that want to buy. I mean, one of the other problems which we have in this country is actually the mortgage market and how the, the mortgage conditions are basically imposed by um, basically the big London-based and, and southern-based southern mortgage companies, because there's only about maybe about half a dozen of them that really have a stranglehold on it. Uh, but the conditions which, which they insert in so many of their mortgages to lend in this country um, does not really reflect or encourage uh, a lot of building and different attitudes to building uh, and individual building and things like that. It's much more difficult to get, um, you know, mortgages if you're being, being you know, you, you're basically self-building or whatever. So there's, there's all sorts of things, you know, that we could, we could do and government could do to change that. Uh, they could even introduce something like, you know, a national, a national mortgage, uh, which would, would, would help an awful lot of, of of people to either get on the mortgage market or maybe move up the mortgage market and release properties and get them get them improved. Various things that we could do, right. um, but this you know this 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 is a real starter in which to to change that actually land becomes uh, really really cheap 
uh, and so it allows the social sector and the private sector to you know to build um, and and hopefully there'll be far more people in that particular market to service that and you know you could well find that you get companies from abroad uh, from Europe etc who are used to building in a, in a completely different way you know to come in uh, and build in this country and compete uh, with you know because the the wimpies and the bellways and all the rest of it they've had it too easy for so long they dictate you know uh, what uh, what goes on to a large extent. We definitely don't want foreign businesses coming in to do what we should be doing ourselves, especially if we follow like the Common Wheel and Scotland 2070, the, the latest book about developing our own forestry, again, coming back to the use of land. So if we develop our own forestry and develop our own timber industries, I agree that then we should be doing this ourselves and building our own houses. What I'm saying is that I think there's a lot of uh, things to be ironed out because, for example, if we created more wealth in the country in terms of um, how much more money the government has got to spend on well-being, then mm -hmm. we could actually look at retrofitting a lot of really substandard housing mm -hmm. at the moment. We could make it even that, that private landlords have to retrofit their, their properties there's lots that we could do with more uh, public funds available, but mm -hmm. I still see a, a bit of a, a flaw in the fact that um, regardless of the price of land, there'll still be a drive to build smaller houses to avoid paying more tax. And that's human nature, I think. So, you know, the, that will still exist. I think we need to look at that in terms of um, how the tax would work. Um, but congratulations, it's been a sort of a revelation for me that somebody's even thinking about these, um, these issues rather than it just being same old, same old, you know, New Scotland, but same old. So, uh, you know, I'll be looking with a lot of interest to see where this develops. So we really need to, to wind up there. Have you got any last, last thing you want to say graham all right well just first of all thank you very much for um, for uh, for uh, inviting me and also uh, lasting the pace um i think this is the longest one i've had so so far um i had i had one in london uh, about three years ago um where um they told me that uh, they were going to have a um have a projector uh, and I didn't need to bring my own projector, uh, so I went down to London, and um, it, it ended up it was in uh, it was in a church in um, in the centre of London, uh, in Soho, I, and I must say I kind of thought for a minute, I said, God, if my mother knew that I was appearing in Soho, she'd have something to say. But anyway, um, so th they didn't even they had the oldest looking projector ever come across. So at the end of the day, I just had to stand up and speak to them. And I was there until half past 10 and it started at seven and I was still standing at half past 10. So this has been a delight by comparison. Uh, but I'm very, very grateful to you all. Um, it would be nice to think that, you know, if, uh, if you want more information um, to, to go and, uh, and uh, spend it. There, there you go, Breeze. That's great. Spend the £10 uh, and get the book uh, and, uh, you know, discuss it amongst yourself. More particularly, discuss it amongst your parliamentary represent representatives uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, get them interested in it. Because I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to the, uh, the meeting with, with Kate. Um, uh, a, a huge amount of respect for Kate um, and I think you know that we can really bring this forward and, and 
and uh, use our land, uh, which really should be the source uh, of our prosperity in this country, and to use it wisely and use it, you know, in the national and the community interest. So thank you very much indeed. No problem. Thanks. Thanks very much to you, Graham. Um, and just to everybody, um, yeah, the next the next part of the, of this event is on the twelfth of February with Kate. This is Indie Live Radio, and you've been listening to Yes Group Spotlight. Uh, this week's program was brought to you brought to you by Grassroots Oban and Graham McCormack, and was entitled Towards a Wellbeing Society in which Graham was talking about his proposal for a new way of taxing our land and property in Scotland. If you'd like to find out more about that, go to his website, which is called annualgroundrent.scot. You can find out more about it there, and you can also purchase the book that he's just produced on that subject. As was mentioned at the end of the meeting, this was part one of a two-part event. The second part is on February the 12th, and it features Graham McCormack again, this time with Kate Forbes, MSP, who, of course, is the Finance Minister at Holyrood. So that promises to be a very interesting evening. Don't miss it. If you want to join that online event, go to the Grassroots Open website and you'll be able to sign up there. Thank you again Grassroots Open for letting us broadcast this event.